Uh, three years ago, I preached a sermon that we titled Sola Scriptura. It came at the beginning of my ministry here at Lincoln Baptist Church, and it took place as a foundational truth that we would rely upon, that we would stand upon as a church. Sola Scriptura means on Scripture alone we stand. Ultimately, everything we need to know about God, everything that God reveals, everything about his character and his salvation plan is in the word of God. And it would be the word of God that would have authority over all of our activities and endeavors here for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Today, I think we mark a new season. So it's been three years since I preached that sermon. And as we start this new season, I thought it was appropriate to bring another foundational truth Um, In the coming weeks and months, uh, we'll be starting our new Genesis series. Next week, we'll start with Genesis 1-1. If you recall, when I started with Mark 1-1, it took me several weeks to get off Mark 1-1. I'll do my best not to stay on Genesis 1-1 for several weeks. But we're going to start a brand new series next week in Genesis. We also are in a season where the world doesn't quite know how to handle COVID. Should we be scared? Should we be nervous? Should we just get back to life as normal? And also today, we have witnessed a new couple coming together and they're starting their lifelong journey in marriage. So I think it's time for another foundational truth as a church to be set. And today we're going to consider sola deo gloria, meaning glory to God alone. Both foundations come from the so-called five solas. They were established around the Reformation time over 500 years ago. And they include sola scriptura, on scripture alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola fide, in faith alone. Sola gratia, in grace alone. And today, sola deo gloria, to God's glory alone. And these five solas, uh, they're so-called, the gospel of Jesus is delivered to us. The gospel that the reformers, like Martin Luther, would stake their lives upon. And it's thanks to the boldness of such men over 500 years ago that we can celebrate in church today with our own Bibles in our own hands. Yet today's message is not about the five solas. We're not going to go into them in detail. It's not even even a, a detailed look at the Reformation. But today I want to focus entirely on what it means to be sola deo gloria, to be giving God the glory exclusively. It's therefore really important for us to establish before we even continue what the word glory means. Because if God is going to get all the glory, then surely we need to know what that actually means. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, the Greek word often used for glory is doxa which can be translated as meaning several things. Magnificence, excellence, splendor, and preeminence. When we add those New Testament translations to the Hebrew word for glory, kaboz, which means dignity and honor and reverence, we see that sola deo gloria carries great significance for the church. In declaring this one phrase, we're seeking to proclaim that God exclusively gets all the splendor and majesty, that he alone is excellent and magnificent and has all authority and is preeminent in everything in the cosmos. 
Just as I preached three years ago in Sola Scriptura, today as we look at Sola Deo Gloria, we're not really playing around. We're talking about a serious and monumental foundation, not only to our Christian faith, but I believe to our church here at Lincoln Baptist. The late J.I. Packer said, our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God in the power of God for the glory of God. Now, we are going to be jumping into our John 17 passage in just a moment. I can hear the car alarm just as everybody else can hear it, but I'm sure we're mature enough to focus in on God's Word and entirely ignore the car, unless it's your car and it's been stolen. So, you know, <laughs> sola deo gloria. God wants the glory for that even. But let's go towards our passage that Ola read out earlier, John 17. Let's not just search blindly to know what sola deo gloria will mean as a foundational principle for us as a church. Let's go to the Word of God, establish what it says, establish what the glory of God is, and then we establish how we ensure it will always happen and exclusively is given to God. And I'm going to just take one verse at a time. If you're new here, what I tend to do is just take one or two verses at a time, see what the explanations are, and then we'll head to some application towards the end. So let me read out John 17, verse 1 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, prior to these words, Jesus had been spending time with his disciples. It was a time that caused much anxiety among them. For Jesus had once again informed them that it was soon time for him to leave. The hour was soon upon Jesus to be led to the cross. And so to comfort them and to reassure them, Jesus promised that they would not be left alone. Instead, the Father would send the Holy Spirit to guide them and show them the way that Jesus had taught them. Yet the disciples were filled with sorrow. For not only was Jesus leaving, but he told them that they would scatter and their loyalty would falter to Jesus. And it's for this reason that Jesus reminded them in the last verse of John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so today we find ourselves in chapter 17, just after these words were spoken. Jesus, therefore, leads the disciples in prayer. And in our Bibles, it is known as the high priestly prayer, Jesus being the high priest. And I want you to, first of all, notice the posture of the prayer. Jesus looks to the Father. He fixes his eyes on the eternal creator. This was not a prayer for show. This was not a prayer that just fills a space in the service. This was a deep and meaningful communication between son and father. And he begins with a, an unusual phrasing. The hour has come. The hour that Jesus was referring to was his death on the cross. The reason that this particular phrasing is unusual is that there are several verses that say the exact opposite. John chapter 2 verse 3, chapter 7 verse 8, chapter 7 verse 30, chapter 8 verse 20 all say that the hour had not yet come. So clearly every moment through John's gospel and, and all the gospel accounts were building towards this ultimate sacrifice of death on the cross. As this moment edges ever closer, 
Jesus prays, and I want you to see that he prays firstly for himself. Yet it's not a selfish prayer, but one that focused on another. Jesus sought to be glorified, the Greek word being doxazo. He sought to be magnified, to be given honor, to be celebrated, to receive splendor. Yet notice, and I want you to notice this in verse 1, this was not for himself. He did not seek fame or popularity. Instead, he sought for the Father to be glorified. The purpose of the Son's glorification was the Father's glorification. Yet the Father can only be glorified if the Son is glorified. It is mutual glorification of Father and Son. And clearly this speaks of the deity of Jesus, Colossians 2.9, for in him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God is in Christ because Christ is God. Yet how can the cross, the cross that Jesus is going toward, that moment coming before him, the greatest humiliation that the world has known, be to the glory of the Son and the Father? What the world has meant for punishment and death, God in his sovereignty would make it for his glory. And there's three things we see on the cross. First, the humble obedience of Jesus. He sought to do the Father's will, and he did so to the point of death, which led to the second, the love of the Savior, who through uh, whom repentant souls would find forgiveness, which leads us to the third and the pinnacle of glory, that God in his mercy, in his love, and his divine authority had set in motion a salvation plan for his people. The Almighty God, through his Son, defeats sin and death, paves way to eternal victory, and all those that call upon the Lord get to hold this victory. At Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has failed. Okay, I want you to get that this morning. We have failed before God, everyone. For all have sinned and fallen short. But here is the wonderful truth. In John 17, Jesus didn't. Through the ultimate act of sacrifice, not only was the Son glorified as one who holds victory in his hands, but the Father's glory is revealed to all the world. This is my Son, who I am well pleased in, who will pave way for eternal peace for you. John 17, 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This mutual glorification we see referenced in verse 1 doesn't simply remain with the Father and the Son, but rather it's shared through the Son to redeem souls in a gift of eternal life. And who gives this gift of eternal life? The glorified Jesus. Yet he's only able to give it because another gift was given first, the gift of authority over all. Remember, the Greek word for glory is doxa, which can mean preeminent. Jesus was given by the Father complete authority. And because of this preeminence, Jesus can go to the cross, complete the work, and then offer eternal life as a gift to all those who would trust in the cross. The mutual glorification of the Father and the Son results 
in the eternal life reward to those who trust. And what is this life that is on offer? Verse 3, and this is the eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I got this quote um, earlier on. There was no name attached to it uh, this week, and it just really stood out to me. Eternal life isn't about the length. We always think about eternity in terms of length, but about the quality. Eternal life isn't necessarily about the length, but about the quality. And what greater quality of life can you have than for everlasting life, knowing the eternal creator, knowing the Son who has brought salvation to us, knowing with deep conviction and in completeness that you are loved, that you are bought, that you are owned, that you are cared for. Don Carson writes, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as knowledge of the everlasting one. To know God is to be truly alive. I'll be really honest, uh, yesterday was my first experience of a Nigerian wedding, um, and it was truly wonderful. Um, the DJ was um, full on, um, I think we could say that. Um, and I, I leaned into Ola actually a little later into the, the proceedings, and I said, man, Western weddings are so boring. <laughs> All the dresses and the dancing, and your pastor even ended up getting involved in a few things. <laughs> There is video evidence. I've had to bribe that evidence to go secret. But one of the things that I caught yesterday at the wedding was the joy that just exuded out of everything. And the praise and the worship and the singing and the dancing. And even that can't compare, cannot compare to knowing the everlasting creator God. So you've been trumped. <laughs> but just think that celebration yesterday. I mean, I even went home and my face was sore from smiling and laughing. I don't know what you guys were like. But can you imagine everlasting life in the knowledge that you stand before the one who was humiliated on the cross so that you might live? To experience his love through Jesus on the cross is to be brought to completion for our hearts search for meaning. Why, does, why do all of us search for the job, search for our spouse, search for meaning in life? Because the only thing that can fill it is knowing God. Another way we could look at it is this. Jesus is glorified by the Father. The Father glorifies Jesus. In so doing, there's this offer of eternal gift, eternal life, that will lead us to experience, experience the glory of God in all of its splendor. That gift is only possible, though, through the Father granting authority and through the Son being obedient to the point of death. And it's only fully realized in each one of us because Jesus holds that victory over sin and death. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Is it not staggering the task that Jesus was given by the Father? Oh, I want you to see this today. He was to humble himself to human form. 
And looking at some of us today, human form isn't necessarily pretty. Um, no, I shouldn't say those things. But he was to humble himself to human form. He was to suffer the cruelest persecution by the hands of, get this, the ones that they had created. And he was to have a painful death. And he was to wage war against sin and Satan. The task would only be complete, and I want you to get this, it would only be complete upon his death and subsequent resurrection. Just imagine if somebody asked you to complete a task and they said, the way it will be completed is that you will be murdered. What a staggering task that Jesus was giving. Not only is this task truly staggering, but the love and devotion of Jesus is immense. Do you not see his dedication, his loyalty, his obedience? Jesus glorified the Father by being obedient to say, I will die and complete the task. Recently, I've been blown away by the faithfulness of Jesus on the way to the cross insults roared from the crowd, false accusations mounted as the cowardly Pilate ducked and dived from responsibility. And what does Jesus do? He remains silent. The most he says is, you have said so. I will not add any more information to what is being said. His eyes are fixed on Calvary where he knew he would suffer. He could have called down a million angels and blasted the world with his glory. But he doesn't. He could have went Old Testament and Exodus and he could have split the world and let his enemies drop. But he didn't. He remains silent. And in his silence, I think we hear a lot. I think we hear this, I will complete the task. I will be the eternal sacrifice that you need. I will suffer even for those who are spitting at me and who hate me. Because in my sacrifice, the Father will be glorified and eternal life will be offered through this bloodshed. Isn't it staggering to see that? I hope you're getting the picture of what glory means. Can anyone else match such splendor and preeminence and such majestic love and mercy to hold silence as the world rages against them? Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The cross acted like a gateway to glory. William Barclay said this, he was like a knight who left the king's court to perform some perilous and awful deed and who having performed it came home in triumph to enjoy the victor's crown. And in this verse we have the wonderful truth. Jesus could only go back to glory to the Father because that's where he came from. It is only Jesus that could go back to glory from whence God came from, because it's only Jesus that is the Son of God. As we work through these verses, remember Jesus was moments away from being betrayed and led to some sham trial. 
He was moments away from excruciating pain through whipping and scourging. He was moments away from humiliating himself through the walk to Calvary. He was moments away from death on the cross. Yet in John 17, moments before this, he prays with power and conviction that what lay ahead, that the world would see as utter destruction, that God would use it for his glory. He prayed knowing victory was already in his hands. Now, when we put sola Deo gloria, glory to God alone, and John 17 together, we need to consider how these principles actually apply to our lives and what we're going to do about it in the coming months and years ahead. How will LBC, this new season, how will we be known for sola Deo gloria? How will Tozen and Latif in their marriage be known for sola Deo gloria? How will each one of us in our own individual lives be known for sola Deo gloria? And because Nigerians don't mind about time, I have five applications. (laughs) But because the British do, they're short. Here's the first one. Only God exclusively deserves the glory. Only God exclusively deserves the glory. In life, many people are going to be celebrated. Olympians, humanitarians, scientists. To some extent, our society even gives, dare I say, celebrities the glory. Bringing it home here at church, we can give the the good old days the glory. We can give a successful ministry the glory. We can just generally be successful and give general success glory. Yet today we have seen the truth. Only God, meaning exclusively, meaning no other, deserves the glory. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Do you see that? The salvation plan of God through Jesus being glorified by death on the cross was from, through, and to the eternal Father. The very fact that we can know with deep assurance that our eternity is secure is because of Jesus Christ. Sola Deo Gloria means that there is none more worthy and deserving than God. Let me put it this way. Can a celebrity, can the good old days, can successful ministries, Compare to the Lord Jesus Christ waging war on Satan and more than that, bringing home the victory. When glory is given elsewhere, we dare suggest that someone or something can match that. So what does this mean practically? Well, simply put, our motivation and our response to all things in life, in our lives and in the life of the church, must be sola Deo Gloria. You name it, we have to respond in that way. The success of online church for 18 months, sola Deo Gloria. The success of a reading program with over 200 people daily reading God's word, sola Deo Gloria. A new marriage in Tozen and Latif, sola Deo Gloria. The church family here, sola Deo Gloria. Our church leadership, Sola Deo Gloria. You name it, it is to God's glory alone. What is our motivation? Say it with me. Sola Deo Gloria. What is our response to all things in life? Sola Deo Gloria. 
The second thing, and as I say, we're British, we move quickly. We give God glory through repentance. We give God glory through repentance. The opposite of sola deo gloria is when we give the glory to ourselves through the sin in our lives. Whether that because we actively sin or whether that be because we think we can get ourselves out of it. Romans 12, 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. To have a sincere love, we must have two things. We must cling to what is good, that being Jesus Christ, and then we are to hate what is evil. In John 17, what was the work that Jesus had completed? It was the work of being a living sacrifice to atone for our sins so that the Father would look upon Jesus and all his wrath would be poured on that cross so that we might be free to approach our Creator. And what were the words of Jesus? He said, it is finished. Yet many of us are still living as if it wasn't finished. Jesus said, it is finished. But many of us live lives with sin and evil that says, was it really finished? Oh, we have good reasons and good excuses for how we behave or what we do or what we say and think. Yet simply put, Living sola deo gloria is to live that it is finished and we don't need this life because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Sola deo gloria is to hate what is evil. Sola deo gloria is to fall at the foot of the cross and cling to Jesus. Sola deo gloria is to repent from our wickedness and to seek forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. And how do we give glory to God that he deserves? We commit our lives to him. Andrew Murray, I always say this, not the tennis player, but the theologian, said, humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. The greatest thing we can do is to humble ourselves before God, declare that Jesus is Lord, and say, sola deo gloria. Number three, we give God glory through obedience. And one of the most striking aspects, I think, of John 17 is the obedience that Jesus showed to the will of the Father. His eyes were focused on Calvary, for he knew his task. He knew the hour had come to complete it. The obedience of Jesus was absolute. It was resolute. It was rock solid. In his obedience, he glorified the Father, showing that his plan and his sovereignty deserved complete loyalty. And is Jesus not our example today? Meaning we are to live as he lived? So, so the day of glory means that we are to be obedient. We're to obey the word of God. We're to hold all things in God's hands, who sustains all and is preeminent and over all things. Obedience is hard. It took Jesus to the cross. Obedience is costly. It took the life of Jesus. Obedience is not popular. Everyone scattered. They ran for the hills. Yet obedience is glory to God alone. In recent years, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it's always been like this, I've noticed how obedience to the word of God is, is seemingly getting harder. It seems to cost even more. It seems to be even more unpopular. I think it was staggering to see the evangelical church of Afghanistan stating church family prepare for martyrdom. It's getting harder to stand for God's word. 
Obedience to the word of God seems to be going out of fashion, maybe just in the Western world, I don't know. But let it not be so here. Let us be sola deo gloria by obedience to God's word. Let us use the freedom that we have today to meet where we are not fearful of martyrdom today. And let us be sola deo gloria so that we can stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and say, we are with you for the sake of Christ. I think Tory, a theologian, put it really, really well when he said, cultivate prompt, exact, unquestioning, joyous obedience to every command that is evident from its context. Be on the lookout for new orders from your king. Blessing lies in the direction of obedience to them. God's commands are but signboards that mark the road to present success and blessedness and to eternal glory. An obedient life is not only sola deo gloria, but it's also a joyous life. I'll go through my final two points very quickly. Number four, we give God glory through the faithfulness to Scripture. Two verses. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The glory of God is found in his word, and therefore we daily, night and day, spend our time in it. Use an app, use your physical Bible, use an iPad, let someone read it out to you, listen to a sermon, do it in a year, do it in two years, do it in ten years, whatever it takes to spend your day in the word of God, because that's where his glory sits. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Folks, remember our children in church are looking to you. We are the generation that is to share with them the mighty acts of God. We're to tell the next generation of his glory. Our children need to hear it. Because if we don't tell them, they're not going to know. And if they don't know and they grow up to have children, then we have a whole generation no longer knowing who God is. No, the next generation needs to hear about the glory of God. And finally, my fifth point, God's glory is victory. I don't think my final application uh, will do justice in just mere words. I wrote this final application point four times and every time I deleted it. I couldn't think of the words to describe the victory in Jesus. And then God took me to a song. And it's called Victory in Jesus. And I'm going to play it for you. And we're going to watch it. You might find yourself clapping. You might find yourself stomping your feet. You might be led to humble conviction that you haven't been given God the glory. You might have been thinking that it's not been finished and I'm still waging war. But during this song, I want you to see this. The victory is in Jesus. He holds it. It is finished. We can have joy. After this uh, video, I will pray and then we'll find, sing our final song. But when you watch this, feel free to sing. Feel free to wave your hands, to clap. Words won't do it justice, so let's do a song instead. 
Cause I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. About the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day. And some sweet day I'll sing of there the song of victory. Oh, sing it, church. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He saw me and bore me. Yeah. Yes, he did. 